everyone was like, I'll call you an Uber. I will get you a taxi. I will drive your car home. Whatever we can do, do not get in your car. So I decided to pull a Too Fast, Too Furious on this guy and have one hand on the wheel. He started clapping his hands and thankfully woke me up enough that I turned the wheel in a 90 degree angle and I didn't hit the palm tree that would have like, you know, taken me out. So that is the voice of Lyra N, 30 years old and sober since February 20th, 2015. My name is Mike S and this is Keep Coming Back, real stories of sobriety and recovery. So the day that I recorded this was Monday, July 6th. It was the first time after a lot of quarantining and a lot of social distancing that it felt okay to me to sit down with someone and safely record again. Now, the irony of all of this was, and I explained this in the very first episode I ever did, was that this format, this podcast format, was something that I had wanted to have, like that, that I would listen to in the event that I couldn't get to a meeting, maybe because I was traveling. And then suddenly, none of us could get to a meeting, but I also couldn't record. What was amazing was I received so many emails and messages from you guys over the past three months. A lot of time it was from people experimenting with new sobriety or that they're coming back after many years. A lot of you guys found me just on like searching on Spotify for sobriety, which I think is amazing. And I'm glad that, you know, these first 26 episodes were of some help to so many people. Now, in today's interview with Lyra, you know, we discuss what our quarantines have been like. We talk about how we feel about Zoom. So I don't want to touch on that too much now. But instead, I want to get a little bit more personal and touch base a little bit more on, you know, what's been going on with me these past three months. So this first of all, this past Sunday, I celebrated four years of sobriety. July 5th, 2016 is my sobriety date. It feels crazy. Uh, you know, I remember when I first walked into a room having, you know, day counting meeting people who had this kind of time that I have now, four years, five years. And to me, it might as well have been a century. It just seemed like an incredible, incredibly unachievable amount of time. Now, looking back, that first 60, 90 days, that obsession to drink and drug was lifted. And what's been incredible is for the rest of, you know, these three plus years, excluding those 60, 90 days, that obsession hasn't been here. But if I'm being totally honest, this time in lockdown, living alone in my apartment, working alone, sometimes not seeing anyone for days on end, that desire to drink and drug, which I've recognized now is just like a desire to change my mental state or or shake things up or just feel different, was the strongest it's been during these four years. And I wanted to just to talk about one moment in particular that really stood out for me. There's this restaurant in New York. It's called Hillstone. There's a couple of them. It's part of that Houston's chain, which is around the country. And part of my daily routine in late March and early April when like the lockdown was at its strongest, what I would I would walk from my apartment in the West Village to Hillstone on 27th and Park. I would pick up food and I would bring it home. It was usually the only time I left my apartment all day. And this one day I walk in around 6 p.m. And the deal was that, of course, you couldn't eat inside. Uh, you were allowed, though, to drink at the bar while you waited for your to-go food to be ready. And so there was always this wall of, I think, dads and other men uh, on bar stools who were just kind of escaping their apartments for 45 minutes. They would drink as many drinks as they could. 
and then they would just bring their food back to their families. Now, I remember on this one particular day that I'm talking about, like I would go in, I would pick up my food and I would pay and I just caught myself like staring at the guys, like staring at them like they were having a great time laughing, drinking. I was staring at the bartender. Like I remember just not at him, but like his hands, watching him pour out martinis, like watching the shaker, watching the ice, like watching to see if he got a good pour in his vodka soda um, and it looking so, so good. But also that feeling of like the only thing that's separating me from that is like my arm and my voice, like the barrier to entry, unlike a drug dealer where I'd have to, you know, make some calls and wait, like the barrier to entry for me to get that drink is so small that all I would have to do is ask. And like, it, it scared me because in that moment, I really thought I should really get out of here because in that moment, like I really, really wanted it, but I didn't. And I went on to, you know, not drink throughout the rest of the quarantine. And I, this past Sunday, celebrated four years uh, and spoke at an outdoor AA socially distanced meeting in the park with some really close friends, a few of which have been on this podcast. You know, I think about looking back the weekend of July 4th, 2016, which was for me the finish of this year-long, I guess I'll call it an experiment of what I'll call controlled drinking, even though I didn't even really know what controlled drinking was. The past 12 months had been me making all these little deals with myself and arrangements. And they would be like, okay, you can't do Oxy, but you can take Xanax sometimes. And maybe you can do cocaine like once a month, but not twice a month. And Ambien is obviously fine because I was taking Ambien for like 10 years. Drinking, obviously, of course, is fine. Percocets, hard no, can't do that. And I lived this crazy, unmanageable life for a year, breaking all these rules constantly, going to AA meetings and lying through my teeth, qualifying in meetings. And like I drank the night before and then I drank afterwards. And the night of July 3rd, 2016, which of course spilled into the early mornings of July 4th, I broke every one of those rules, you know, like every single one. I'd heard a line in a meeting already that said, if you escape the lion's den, don't go back for your hat. Well, I had escaped the lion's den, so to speak, in that like my drug of choice, which was oxys and Percocets, I really had stayed away from from the most part. But on that night, man, like I went back for my hat. I went back for my shirt, my belt, everything. Like I broke everything. And while that alone was demoralizing and shameful, if you ask me, what do you remember most from that weekend? It's not the drugs and the drinking and the shame and the shitty feeling that came with it. I just remember feeling like, where did everybody go? That's what it was. Looking around and thinking, where did everyone go? Don't get me wrong. Like my, This wasn't an abrupt thing. My social life had dwindled down to like one or two hardcore drug addict friends. The girlfriends were long gone. But there was something about July 4th. I had all these great memories. I felt like it was always like this amazing time, benchmark in the summer. You celebrate, you be social. And here I was, one friend, doing drugs together and thinking, where did everyone go? And later that night, I remember being alone in my apartment after that long day, that long weekend. And I called that one friend and I said, I think I have to stop drinking. And the next day I went to a meeting and I raised my hand and I said I had one day. It was probably the first time I had gone to a meeting and actually shared honestly. And four years later, I haven't had to feel that way again. 
And I know it's cliche, but it really is true a day at a time. So a couple of very quick disclaimers before I get into this interview today. Number one, so you know, I've mentioned this before, I record from a small little room in my apartment. It's not a soundproof studio. And on this particular day, there was this insane summer thunderstorm happening during the recording. So if you hear rolling thunder throughout, that is why. Number two, uh, if you want to write into this podcast, I love to read and respond. You can either email me. The address is keepcomingbackpodcast at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram. The handle is at kcbpodcast. And today's interview with Lyra picks up in the middle of an early conversation we were having, and it was about exposure to recovery through her friends and going to her very first meeting and what that was like. So with that, here is the interview. I had two girlfriends. One was my best friend who had moved out to LA, and then another was my girlfriend, Johanna, who I uh, model with in Miami. And the two of them, Johanna in particular, every time she'd see me at, at jobs together, she'd be like, I've got a C for you, have a save, like mm. when you're, you know, when you're ready. And I and I always thought she was messing with me, but literally my clients I would show up and they'd be like, You smell like alcohol. And I'd be like, ha, ha, ha this is so funny. Because at the time it was kind of like cocaine Kate Moss, this rock and roll. So it was kind of just went into this like emaciated model persona that I had you know it was like of course right. you know of course she parties and she's Plus, just like, I think like what you said before about like kind of living a life of yes and I did that too which is like I kind of lived a life sometimes like for the story mm-hmm. and like wanting to have like a bigger life uh yeah. to kind of show you that I was living a big life mm-hmm. and then have the stories to prove it yeah yeah definitely no I like that sums up my entire life was I live for a story yeah. and and I think it, part of it was probably undiagnosed depression and things of that nature. But I really just wanted, I really wanted like incredible stories. And I was yeah. like, I will die for a story. My life is, my life is worth a great story. And, and I don't feel that way anymore, thankfully. But because of that, you know, that mentality, I definitely got myself into some precarious situations. So a girlfriend in LA of mine, a good friend, I went out to visit her and she told me, hey, I'm doing this thing now. I'm going to these meetings. And she was, she told me later, like she was about to cut me off as a friend because I was partying. I was really in it. I wasn't showing any signs of stopping. And I agreed to go to a meeting with her because I'm like, you're my friend. I'll do whatever you want. And so we went to this incredible Did you understand, by the way, like what she meant? Like, Not meaning, like, really. you want to cut me off, I you can't be friends with me. She didn't. She never told me that. She told me that years later. Uh, okay. So she just said, I'm doing this thing now. I'm going to these meetings and I'm not drinking. And okay. she was one of, like, my party friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I was like, whatever you want. I'm, like, your friend. I'm flying out to L.A. to visit you. Right. I'll support you. Go. Yeah, I'll support you wherever you go. <laughs> so we go down to this meeting in L.A. I forget which meeting it was. It was young people's meetings. So all the guys are, like, wearing leather jackets. And the girls look really great. And everyone's dressed up super L.A. And the guy's story was insane. I electrocuted myself when I was younger. I got sober. My wife left me for my sponsor and I didn't drink. My kids then were really messed up with drugs and alcohol. Then they got sober. It was just the guy was like 36 years sober. Mm -hmm. And I just remember like, that's so cool. What a great story. And then of course, like went out, you know, with with my girlfriend later that night and then, you know, was partying and using drugs and alcohol. But um, and we've talked we talked a little bit about this. Like I did that, too. Yeah. And I just liked the meeting yeah like i think anyone like it's the best reality tv for a buck right like you could just walk into this room and hear the craziest story you've ever heard crazy and that's originally like what kept me coming back yeah that was it me too i heard i heard some guy qualify and he was like premeditating murder 
right. then was like, and I didn't do it. Thank God for AA. And we were like, keep coming back, right. you know, like, all right. Um, but yeah, I really love that. And I, love- I remember like drinking after meetings yeah. and being like, that was some meeting. <laughs> that was a great meeting. <laughs> Please, uh, 1942 on the rocks. No, I, I can definitely relate. And I think that because no one judged me for for that and no one was like, hey, we keep seeing you, but we don't think you're sober. Like no one called me out. No one gave me crap for it that I felt really welcome and at home. And I just felt among my people. And I just wasn't ready to go to the other side yet. Um, because, Would you, you know, raise your hand in the meeting? Um, I don't know if I would share. I don't think I would share. I, again, I have a really bad memory. So, like, I'd mostly kind of listen to the stories. But if I did have to say anything, I would say my name and, and I would identify myself as, as an alcoholic. Right. I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, early on in my life when I was young, I remember having a thought. I was maybe nine that, like, I'm going to be an alcoholic someday. Like, I just remember knowing it. Is and, anyone in your family a drinker? Yeah. Who? <laughs> Everyone on my dad's side. Um, and probably more like mental health stuff, like on my mom's What's side. What's your background? Like um, your... Eastern European mutt. Okay. Same. Very, yeah. I got my 23 me. It's very Eastern European. Okay. So I was going to meetings for a year and I would kind of count days. My first sobriety in my mind was it's Alcoholics Anonymous. So no alcohol. And I'm going to do coke. Right. And See, I was, I was the opposite. Oh, really? I was like, I knew I was an AA, but I was kind of just like, I, you know, alcohol doesn't call to me that I think it calls to you yeah. guys pointing at everyone in the room. Yeah. But like pills is my thing. Yeah. So like we're fighting the same struggle. So I would raise my hand thinking about pills. Yeah. And would give true day counts, but I would still drink right after Totally. 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 Yeah. I think that we, ha- we always have to, I'm, I guess, yeah, because I'm the opposite of you because I really am like uppers were more my thing, mm. preferably, you know, through the nose. Um, that was more of my thing than uh, alcohol, really, because alcohol kind of puts me to sleep. Like, I'm not really a big anything else Right. So, um, so yeah, that didn't work, obviously. I, I drank again pretty quickly. I just had someone, you know, uh, peer pressure me enough a few times saying, you know, coercing me to take a shot of tequila, and I did. Sure. So then for, I – For me, yeah. like – I did this for a year, mm-hmm. you know, and so and the end, just like to throw about like what my last drink was like, my last drink was actually the week of July 4th, 2016. Yeah. And it was like this culmination of controlled drinking or like what I thought my version of that was mm-hmm. not knowing what controlled drinking is. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. just making all these deals with myself, like mm-hmm. and then breaking them time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. And then the last time for me was like broke every rule that had been set. Like, mm-hmm. did the drugs that I said I would never do again? Did the combination that I said I would never do again up till seven in the morning with mm-hmm. people I shouldn't be with? Mm-hmm. So, like, was that what you were doing? Was that what the end looked like where you were finally like, enough is enough? Well, definitely. I think that I I thought that I could kind of stop whenever I wanted. Like, I thought I was doing it by choice. And then through, like, my year of going to meetings and doing these weird day counts, like weird my sobriety, my way, mm-hmm. um, I realized that uh, it was out of my control. Like I couldn't stop. I would make these, I would say, okay, well, here's my plan. I'm going to have this drink, two drinks, you know, no Coke or whatever, and then go home at this time. And then I've got a full day tomorrow. And right. then I would be up until 6 a.m. drinking warm bottle of tequila with like one friend at their house, having the same conversation over and over again, chain smoking cigarettes. And I'm like, wait, how did this happen again? It's Tuesday. And I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be doing this. So I started feeling like I just didn't wasn't in control mm-hmm. when I always had this illusion of control. That's why I like uppers because I'm I'm 
I'm type A, even if I'm not necessarily a perfectionist, like I just want to be, have this sense of control. And so when I, when I truly realized that I was out of control, that's when I was like started getting more of that willingness. Um, so kind of fast forward, I guess, to my last drink, perfect segue. I had set a clear intention because that's kind of what they teach you, right? Is like have a plan before mm-hmm. you drink, right. you know, like know that you're going to, you know, like who you're going to go with, how you're going to get home and all that. And um, it's funny, I met, I went to a meeting that night because I was still going to meetings and I was about to pick up my white chip, which in Miami is your 24 hours of right. sobriety. Were you going gonna- to the Sobe room? I was, yeah. Yeah, so I got sober in the Sobe room. Okay. So I went to go pick it up, and I was like, you know, my friends are flying in town from New York. We're going to go to Nobu. I really want to drink some expensive red wine. So I'm going to pass tonight, and, like, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Not take the white chip. Not take the white chip. This is how the night unfolded. Uh, run into, you know, run into a friend before dinner at Nobu, have a drink with them, Go to Nobu, have two glasses of wine. I said absolutely no tequila. After the two glasses of wine, had a shot of tequila. Told everyone, I'm sorry, I'm going home. And they were really upset. And as I'm driving home, a friend texts me and was like, we're going to karaoke. And I'm like, I love karaoke. So I go to karaoke. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to drink because I told myself I won't drink. But that Coke sounds really good right now. Let me do some of that. Then, of course, I'm not tired. Yeah, I'm not tired at all. So I decided to go to a nightclub where there was a guy who I was talking to was there and pretended to drink. This is something I used to do when I before I started drinking when I was maybe like 15 is I would go to the club and I would be 15, 16 and I'd pretend to drink from the bottle right. of alcohol because I knew that I was going to be an alcoholic. So I was very sensitive to it when I was 15, 16 of not trying to drink as much because I just knew I was going to have a problem. And so I pretended to drink from the bottle of alcohol, like with all my friends. So they would feel as if I was like a part of. Mm-hmm. And then at, at some point in the night, I'm like, you know what? It's probably been an hour. I can have a little bit. And then ended up stealing that bottle of tequila from the nightclub and taking it to the dive bar across the street. And, you know, at that point, it was like maybe three-ish. And I'm just swigging a warm bottle of tequila at this bar. And the bartenders, the female bartenders, told me I couldn't do it. I was cursing at them. I just threw like dollar bills in their faces and I was like, leave me alone. And they just left me alone because I was so crazy. And then I decided that I wanted to take my love interest home. So I was going to drive him home. And it was like a movie. Everyone was like, I'll call you an Uber. I will get you a taxi. I will drive your car home. Whatever we can do, do, right. do not get in your car. And I was so adamant. I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm going to go. And so I go to take this guy home and I'm really nervous. And like, I am such an emotional drinker. That was like part of my problems, like strong emotions, both happiness and sadness or discomfort, whatever. It's like my, to get outside of myself and to avoid those feelings. I'm like, okay, like anything I'm going to grab for anything. Mm. It can be food, drinks, drugs, whatever. And I was really nervous about this guy. So I also, another part of like my drinking was really, really reckless behavior. Like I would just be very, um, put myself in like, I would just do weird things. And so I decided to pull a too fast, too furious on this guy and have one hand on the wheel and look at him and not look at the road and go and put my foot on the pedal to the floor. Right. So full speed. And it's like a 30 mile an hour sign. I blacked out at the wheel <laughs> while doing this. 
And, you know, the guy in my car is like 6'3". He's like a guy, you know, he's like a man. And he told me later that he was so afraid, but he was looking at me and he's like, you know, this little girl, like she can't, I can't, I can't look scared to her. So he didn't stop me earlier. But then when he realized that I was like, you know, not there anymore. He started clapping his hands and thankfully woke me up enough that I turned the wheel in a 90 degree angle and I didn't hit the palm tree that would have like, you know, taken me out. Like I was, you know, cause I hit a, a speed limit sign. I hit an electrical box. I took it out and then almost this palm tree. Whenever anyone asks me, you, you meet someone new, whether yeah. you're like on a date or yeah. just a friend and you let them know that you are sober. Yeah. And the first thing that they always want to know for me is they're like, what happened? Yeah. And so I always joke. My joke is always, well, you know, my bottom did not involve me flying through a windshield. And yeah. Because that's what they want to hear. Yeah. Yours kind of did. Oh, totally. Absolutely. So that that experience, I was like, okay, what what can I do to never have this happen again? And then that's basically my second phone. So my first phone call was to a friend who's had like 40 UIs. And then the second was to a woman I had met in the rooms who I was like, can you please sponsor me? Yeah. And that's my sobriety date. And that was it. That was it. I want to know about your like your family. So yeah. where did you grow up? So I grew up in, I was born in Dallas, but both of my parents are from New York. Um, moved to South Florida when I was 11. My sister and my dad moved to Montana, so I didn't grow up with my sister past that age. And your parents split up? Yeah, they split okay. up when I was like one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but and we lived, lived together. you lived with your mom? I lived with my mom, yeah. Just the two of you? Uh, she had. She was dating a guy who was actually an alcoholic, so he passed away from the disease. Did he have kids? No. So it was the three of you until he passed away. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. Um, and you said in your family, your dad, not a drinker. Definitely a drinker. Definitely a drinker. Yeah. Think he has a seat, like he belongs in the rooms? <laughs> he is now in the rooms. He is? Yeah. How long? Um. So hilariously, I did my eighth step for him or my amends to him and he laughed at me. Uh, he related it to that Seinfeld episode. I guess there's an episode where like George is like making an amends yeah. and laughed about it. And I was like, okay, well, this is a serious thing uh, and I'm just making my peace. And so there it is. You have it. And that's it. And then maybe two months later, he texted me that he was in the hospital and I called him or he called me and he was really messed up on uh, meds because he was detoxing and he had like DTs. So they kept him at the hospital for four days and wouldn't release him. Um, but apparently he had been having suicidal thoughts and hadn't told anyone and was trying to drink himself to death. Mm. So, yeah. When you think back to when like drinking was fun, mm-hmm. right? Like, what do you think about? I think about the sense of community because I always was not always but when i was younger was very much a loner yeah i didn't like people i didn't get it i was very much in my own shy i was a little shy i was actually pretty shy yeah yeah but i loved i loved sci-fi fantasy i i drew and i read and i wrote and i just was kind of always in my head and i didn't really want anyone else around and then i kind of had like a, a point when i moved to south florida where i was like i should probably start trying to make friends because I think that's going to be something that's important in my life at some point and I shouldn't miss out on. And that kind of, you know, when I when I had my first drink of alcohol and I went out for the first time, I felt the for the first time a part of and I felt really connected to people where I'd always had kind of a barrier. Um, what do you think was up with the barrier? The barrier for me was, here's how I always describe it, that like I have things in my head that like I 
like I know I want to say, mm-hmm. but there's like this thing that holds me back sometimes, mm-hmm. like fear, judgment, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. Yeah. And so alcohol like was like the trap door for that and just like let it all flow. Mm. So I have very unique tastes that most people don't share. So I love Japanese anime. I grew up on it. Okay. Obsessed. Watch it all the time. Draw it. Just think about it. Love talking about it. And I knew no one who was into that. So were like, you like a huge Pokemon fan? Or like no, we're talking like, like much more so, anime than that? Um, so there's a, there's a show called Neon Genesis Evangelion. It's my favorite. It is very dark. And okay. It's very deep. And it was the first show I watched when I was nine. And I think that if my mom had watched it beforehand, she probably wouldn't have let me watch it. But because it's a cartoon, people think that it's very uh, childlike. But I loved the animation. I loved the story. And essentially the guy who wrote it, this man Hideaki Anno, he was going through severe depression at the time. And so he used it as a tale of all the characters go through these psychotic episodes. And something I found out recently is my mom is is manic depressive. So she's bipolar. I didn't realize the two were the same. Mm-hmm. And so my mom would, like she did the best she could. She's an awesome mother. And she and I get along so well on so many intellectual levels. But when it came to like the mother-daughter relationship, I was much more rebellious. And we would really like clash sometimes. And, um, and that was like, you know, it wasn't, super traumatic because I'm okay with it and did my men's with my mom and we're good but it still was very isolating especially because she and her boyfriend at the time were he was an alcoholic and it and it it messed with my mom's own like proclivity for mental illness and drinking and so they would argue and then I would just be kind of there so I kind of just always felt really like isolated at home I hated being at home I hated it how come because Did, I had a... <laughs> but meaning like, was it like, I'm trying to get a oh, picture. Yeah. So, so like, like, is the picture kind of like you felt I'm, like your mom wasn't being your mom? No. Like, imagine you come home and your, your, like, your parents are, fuck you, fuck you. And me being like, hey, like, you know, re- relax. Like, why are you guys arguing? Fuck you. You know, mm-hmm. then like, it's on me. Or, you know, there was one time. Would you I'm, try to do that? Like, I, yeah, was tr- yes. I would often be uh, or try to be like mediator yeah. with, with my parents too. Yeah. You definitely. And then it would kind of come on me. Um, there Which were times, neither one of them want. No. But, like, it was just very, like, erratic. Like, one time I came home and my mom answered the door and then she passed out on me. And we, like, had to, like, like I don't even know what – I still don't even know what happened to her to this day. But she just passed out. Or I came home and she's curled up on the fetal position in her bedroom, like, crying and he's yelling. And I'm just, like – you know, like, it was just confusing. Yeah, it was chaos. It was chaos. And, like, so, so home didn't feel safe. Like, you know, like, at least for me, like, my home now, like, typically feels safe. And I kind of know when I go there, like, everything's just – can pretty much predict it. And it was very unpredictable. And so that just made me feel just always uneasy. Yeah. So when I found, like, nightclubs and going out and drinking, I was like, oh, my God, this is a release because I had all this pent-up – you know, I had this pent-up stuff because nobody liked the same things that I liked. So I had to hide my personality um, because I tried to share it and open up with people and people just stopped being friends with me as a kid. So then I was like, well, I can't be who I really am. So I'm going to have to make this fake persona. Drinking and, and drugs gave me that sense of like confidence to just be another person. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was like my, like my, my friends, right. I could escape and just be this other, other human. And, um, and yeah, so that worked for, for a while for me. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes like from time to time, mm-hmm. this actually just happened, but. From time to time, someone will come to me. It's often my dad, actually. And he'll say, 
so why do you think you're an alcoholic? Mm. Or he'll say, what made you want to drink so much? And I'll usually say something like, because it, like what I said to you, like lets things out. But like most of all, like if I had to make it really simple, it just made me feel okay. Mm-hmm. Right? It just made me feel okay. Yeah. No worries. Mm-hmm. What, how would you answer that question? Um, so when I told my mom and dad that I was getting sober, they both told me that I didn't have a problem. And why? Like Why? And I told them that that I did feel like I just wasn't achieving like my goals in my life. And so I, I really just needed to kind of give this up. But the why of like why would a you know why I would say why what I would answer to them if they asked like why I thought I drank too much um, was definitely completely emotional because I had no tools on how to deal with my emotional distress and even if it was emotional elation like I love when they talk about in like some of the AA literature when they say you know like I'm no longer burning up energy foolishly um, and I'm and I you just don't have those like kind of manic episodes mm-hmm. and then the you know the the low lows like I'm kind of even keeled that's what I just didn't have I didn't have any serenity or like a like just a chill line it was always one one you know up too high or down too low and and I thought that you know I felt like a chemist when I was out there I'm like okay a drink and then a line and then a cigarette and this and this is what's going to make me happy and I was just chasing it and I think that because when you find that when you find that perfect moment you know which is so rare yeah it's you you get it in the beginning right that you're chasing it the rest of the time it just it doesn't always happen Um, that, you know, you kind of end up doing it too much because you think that that's the only way, that's the only way I knew how to make myself feel better. As you said, like I just wanted to feel okay in my skin because I felt like I was crawling out of my skin. So the arc of my story, probably if you had to like go from like teenager to adult Mm -hmm. to the end, to the end of the road Mm -hmm. was like, I was also kind of a loner. Yeah. I actually would make like radio, you know, you talk about that. I would like make radio shows in my room at like Mm -hmm. eight and nine. Um, Loner, alcohol and drugs make me social. But mm-hmm. at the end, back to loner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that you too? You mean at the end of my drinking? Yeah, like meaning like I always say there was like a triple life going mm-hmm. on. There was me, like the version of me that like my parents would see. There was a version of me that like I was only hanging out with like hardcore drug addicts at this point. So like that they would see. Yeah. And then there was like me alone, mm-hmm. like shades drawn, doing cocaine alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, that guy got super weird. Yeah. Like, putting pots and pans on the windowsills because he thinks people are getting in. So I I guess what's more – so I don't know if I – I probably could have – I mean, I, I think I have decades left of drinking and drugging left in me to have another bottom. But um, what, what I started realizing was that – you know, when I went to after parties, basically what would happen is I would um, find some pieces of paper and go draw anime alone in the corner and like put on my own music and like not talk to anyone. Right. <laughs> so it became kind of clear to me that I didn't, you know, like I I did still want to be alone just because I like creating and I like being alone because I don't necessarily need anyone else to create. But I was also fighting this this bone crushing loneliness and like hole in my soul that I just needed to be surrounded by people at all times. So like if I went back to my apartment, it just felt very, very dangerous. And I have other outside issues. I have like problems with food, like thankfully I've overcome them. Um, But I, you know, those, those afflicted me for years. And so the home was never like me alone was never safe for Mm. me. So it's like I needed to be around people, but I also wanted to be alone. But uh, being around people made me feel more safe, but I just didn't really want them. Sometimes being with people would make me feel more alone. 
Does that make exactly. sense? 1000%. Because again, depending upon who you're with, like they, you know, it, yeah. Because if you it, feel like you're not connecting to a group of people, yeah. it feels lonely, even Definitely. though you're surrounded by them. That's that terminal, terminally uniqueness. Like that, when I heard that phrase, term, terminally unique, I was like, that is how I felt. I always felt no one can understand me. No one gets me. No one relates to me. And it's like me floating among a sea of people, but none of you get me. Right. And now that can take two forms though, because that can take the form of like, oh, I'm such a unicorn. Like I'm so special. No. But then also on the flip side, like I'm like, something's wrong with me. Yeah. Well, that again kind of goes into the, that um, something that they talk about, the kind of swing of, you know, mania and ego of I am the best to the complete low of like, I am the worst. No one wants me. I'm a social pariah. So it was right. like, it, it was kind of like the same exact situation of like that terminally, terminal uniqueness would sometimes be like, I'm just the most amazing and special thing. There's no one ever like me to the, oh my God, I'm absolutely horrible. And, you know, I just. I love those yeah. lines. Like they're like, um. I'm going to screw them up, but like I'm a, I'm the asshole at the center of the universe <laughs> yeah. or I'm like, or I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I would hear those. I'd be like, wow, that's so spot on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that um, when I, when I heard the phrase um, selfish and, and self-centered, I totally resonated with that because even though I had probably zero self-esteem, I was all that I would think about. Mm-hmm. And I thought that everyone was always thinking about me. Everyone was always looking at me like anytime I walked out the door. And that's why I just had this crippling anxiety that just needed to be satiated by something to get myself out of myself so I could turn off my brain. Right. I totally get that. And that's why I like downers, by the way, because like downers would literally be like, let's shut it down. Yeah. You know, Um, I ask you to pick a topic Mm -hmm. that you wanted to talk about Mm -hmm. today. So what what is it? Um, so I wanted to talk about a combo of sponsorship, working with others, and then actually a little bit of relationships if we have time because yeah. that's been very probably relevant. That's my favorite my... thing to talk about. Oh, really? Me. Yeah, for sure. Do you always talk about it? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, hope I don't want you to repeat yourself. No. But um, So for me, when I came into the rooms and they said, you know, find a sponsor who has what you want, my first sponsor in Miami was, you know, this beautiful blonde girl she had a job and a, and a boyfriend and a car and just was calm. Mm-hmm. And that is what I needed. She was absolutely incredible. And she picked me up and she showed me what it was like to stick to commitments. And when you say something, show up. Because I wasn't used to that with all my fair weather party friends. You mm-hmm. know, it'd be like, oh, love, see you on Thursday. No one calls or texts on Thursday, you know. And that was kind of what I was used to is just that friendship wasn't really friendship. It was kind of like, let's make plans. But then when it comes to the day, oh, gosh, I really hope. They break the plan because I don't want to leave my house. Plus those like grand plans that we make, especially like on drugs and alcohol. (laughs) Absolutely. And it just felt really inauthentic. And that kind of contributed to my loneliness of like, well, see, no one really actually cares about me. They're not showing up. But the program kind of taught me like my part in that accountability that I wasn't showing up for them. So it's really hard for me to like ask for something that I can't even reciprocate. Um, so no, you know, no kind of negative emotions around that, thankfully. But, um, you know, my sponsor now, so I moved to Chicago. So I got sh- sober in Miami, did all the things they tell you not to do. They tell you not to date your first year, not to move or change jobs. I ended up moving to Chicago. I started seeing someone like six days into sobriety. Well, you was, waited five days. I know. And I thought I knew everything. 
Right. Thought I knew everything. I saw him and I was like, this is great. I'm sober. Did you meet him in the rooms? No. No, I did not. I met him outside of the rooms, but I saw him while I was still drinking and then randomly ran into him six days into sobriety. And I was like, this is the universe's son. Right. You know, we're supposed to. I deserve this. Yeah, I deserve (laughs) this. I've got it. I get the idea also of like, at least when I like fully gave up everything, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a funeral, right? Yeah. And so I need a sense of joy. Like Mm -hmm. what's going to bring me joy now? Right. Like you've just taken my joy away from me. So like a woman will do it. Sure. Sure. Don't date in your first year. That applies to you. Now it doesn't apply to me. (laughs) Doesn't say that in the big book explicitly. Right. That's always a very good rebuttal. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it was, you know what? I understand why they say that. And I tell my sponsees that as well, is that if you get into a relationship early on and you build your program with this person, because how fun is it to date someone who's also in sobriety? Mm -hmm. You go to the same meetings, you fellowship. The problem with that is if something goes wrong, your safe space is eradicated. It's no longer safe. And what so the the way to counteract that is if you are going to have a relationship in sobriety and they also are working a program is to just make sure that you guys have separate meetings. And maybe you could do like one a week or whatever together, but like not to build your program together because it just sets yourself up for failure and you might drink again. Um, But so anyways, met this guy early sobriety. We started like kind of he was long it was long distance so it was actually perfect that's why I'm like I'm saying you know I did it okay because he was in a whole other city mm-hmm. so I had my own fellowship he had his um, oh he was sober mm-hmm. okay cool oh yeah yeah he was seven years sober at got that it point, that point and he was dating you with six days so he talked Oof. to his sponsor about it okay. and his sponsor was like no and he told me he was like I talked to my sponsor my sponsor was like hey like you know not a good idea and I was really bummed. But we kind of kept seeing each other. We just would, he would be, we'd be in the same city and we kind of kept talking. And, and so it kind of like turned into this pretty much year long, um, long distance relationship. And it was great. Like um, we're still friends to this day. He lives in New York. Um, He's still sober. I'm still sober. So it worked out, but moved to end up moving to Chicago. And um, so I had eventually had to get a new sponsor there because I was trying to make it work with my Miami sponsor and I was just too new. So I needed someone close and I met a woman who is just, she is my, she's my angel. She's my absolute angel. And anytime something happens, she's the first person that I text and call. And she just is an objective spiritual leader, as silly as that sounds. I can't describe it any other way. Um, But I think that having a relationship with someone who is not a lover, a family member, or has any past history, who's really an objective party, who is who cares most about your sobriety and their own sobriety and taking you on your your sobriety journey is is everything I wanted from my parents. You know that they mm-hmm. that they couldn't yeah. that they couldn't give me and not because they're bad parents, it's just at least like the relationship dynamic that I'm used to as like a parent child um, I they can't be objective because they care about me and they think they know best and and which are all great attributes of a parent. But I need someone who can say, hey, this is what I suggest. This is what you know is is you know the actions that you can take. If you don't take them, we're all good. You don't have. I'm not going to leave you because of it, or I'm not going to yell at you. But like this is what I this is what I suggest, and I just have absolute tremendous respect. Um, for my sponsor. If you ask me, like, what's the best part about the relationship that you have with your sponsor? Mm -hmm. And for sure what it is, is that it's the only, like, 100% honest relationship that I've ever had in my life. Bingo. And I sometimes want my my sponsees to know that. Mm -hmm. Be like, this is 
possible or and like if you want it this is what it can be mm-hmm. but when i think back honesty is a big part of my story lack thereof mm-hmm. like i'll lie about the dumbest things yeah and with him though it's never been that way mm-hmm. talking about my parents sometimes i realize now like i used to think like oh i couldn't have that with them and what i've come to realize is like i don't necessarily give them enough credit sometimes mm-hmm. because like if you're vulnerable, if I'm vulnerable with someone else and being like extremely open, I'm, it's often an invitation for the other person to do it back. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, if you ask me like what's been the theme of this past year or two, um, that's what it's been like. Trying that like sponsor-sponsee relationship mm-hmm. on people I already knew and like had relationships with and mm-hmm. like trying to grow those. Yep. Do you, yep. do you find this that like... I have no trouble, like, reaching out to, like, a stranger in an AA room and Mm -hmm. saying, like, really kind things to them. But, like, people in my own life, friends, Mm -hmm. family, parents, like, I have trouble with that. Mm. You know what? I've actually never thought about it. But I I have a sponsee that that I'm currently working with who is absolutely lovely. And she is the – she is, like, the perfect example of someone who just goes out of her way to send – really nice notes and like handwritten cards and thoughtful gifts and she really encourages me to be more like that because i i think that you're right instinctually i'm kind of like well like their family and their friends they know that i love them i don't need to say it right versus like a stranger doesn't know but now i'm like you know what like that reinforcement it feels good when when i get it and i and it's something that i feel like is worth reciprocating so i haven't thought much about it but it is it is something that um would definitely like to work on. Yeah. I had this thing yesterday where like my it was so it was my anniversary yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so thank you. My parents know it's in the general vicinity of this. And mm-hmm. it's a big deal. I don't know how you feel about it, but like this is bigger than like my real birthday. And mm-hmm. like I look forward to it more for sure. And uh I was thinking in the morning, I was like, I wonder if one of them will call and acknowledge this event. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, that's like a very like childish thing. <laughs> To want. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And so I was like, I'm going to get out in front of this instead. And so I called my dad in the morning and I was just like, hey, it's a big day for me. I just wanted to let you know that like I appreciate and love you. Mm-hmm. And I've always and I like I don't thank you enough mm-hmm. for the support you give me. Yeah. So like instead of like waiting like a 10 year old for mm-hmm. his dad to say like I'm proud of you. Yeah. Flip it mm-hmm. and like say like thank you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Taking action and initiative. Well, something my sponsor told me is like anytime you have an anniversary, you call you call all the old sponsors that you used to work with and you thank them. and You say, mm. hey, today's my anniversary. I just want to say thank you so much. And you're right. Like people want we like want to wait. We want to have people read our minds mm-hmm. and, exactly. and kind of segueing to like my mentality towards like relationships just in general, whether in the rooms or not, is that you know, having this fully authentic and honest relationship and working this, you know, walking the spiritual path, honesty for me and just getting ahead of my feelings and kind of saying, not being afraid to say what I need. And if someone can't give it to me, accepting that that's just where they're at, um, is, is really been like managing expectations has been, I think, my theme of the past year. So, you know, where, where I think I am or we are, uh, and then like maybe where they think they are and like just saying this is this is where I'm coming from. Let me know like where you're coming from so that we can just like squash that because I I think that, you know, that's where resentments live. Totally. The space between expectation and yeah. reality. So it's like the further you can get ahead of that, the fewer resentments that you have. So you taking that action and calling your family and being like, this is big for me takes all that away. Like that's any right. space for resentment 
you completely squash. And that's that's how I want to get ahead of everything to this day. It's like I don't want to feel bad waiting for someone because you know, especially if they're not working a spiritual program, they're not working on themselves most likely. And they're not really, they're probably not thinking like, you know, getting on their knees every morning, asking their higher power for whatever their will is and like how to be a better human today or like the best human that we can be. Most people don't do that. So this is, I want to say, I like the topic of dating. So what's your spiel? Like, let's say we're on a date right now and waiter comes over. Mm -hmm. Hey, oh, what are you having? What do you want? Yeah, water. Oh, and then, of course, he says, oh, you don't drink? Um, well, I would probably tell them that, I mean, it really depends how well that I I know them. And most people... No, this is like a first date. Okay, so first date, no one I that I didn't know. I mean, if... Typically, this is like I'm just really doing, honest. Li- we're acting out living sober right yeah, now. Yeah. I mean, really, I would probably just be like, I, I've been sober for five and a half years and I and I don't drink. It doesn't do anything for me. It puts me to sleep because that's yeah. true. Yeah. Alcohol puts me to sleep. If you want me to take a nap at the table, then like by all means, order me a drink. But I can't imagine anyone that wants to do that. So, yeah. I, I always keep it light. Keep Same. it light. Yeah. Because no one really – the only people who care are – The drinkers. The drinkers. That's right. So the ones that are like – Ooh, you know, because I used to say that if someone was at my dinner table and not drinking or at a group dinner, I would say, I don't trust you. I don't (laughs) trust people who don't drink. What's your problem? And I would get really in their face. Yeah. And I think that it just depends you as you get to know someone more, like how much they can handle of your story or whether they're worth the time. To go into specifics, 100%. Yep. yeah. I always like I'm I'm like my father. I love making jokes of things. So for me, it's never like, oh my god, my life was so terrible and like I was drinking and blah, blah, blah. it's like not. It's not boring. It's like I was dancing on tables and exactly. I was like doing. I was you know I literally would crowd surf in nightclubs and you know I just wasn't getting. I wasn't really serious about my life, so I needed to stop drinking. It's very it's very simple for me uh, in that way. But like you know, obviously the car accident, even that's a funny story. So. Make the girl okay. Second date story. Yeah, exactly. Second date story. Um, I want to just quickly touch on a couple because we're almost at an hour okay. already. So um, give me your best amends story. Best amends story. I would definitely be my dad. 100%. So when I when I started delivering the amends and he was making fun of me laughing, talking about that Seinfeld episode that one mm-hmm. time. I know what the reference is. George's friend uh-huh. gets sober and George is waiting for his amends and, oh! and can't get one. So he's <laughs> I, like, where's I've my amends? There. I've been there. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's that was probably the best one. Because especially, too, after that. What did you want to say to him? Um, I mean, I, I told him that I, I apologized for not being – very present because I was very in my family life. I was very checked out. I was in Saint Tropez. I was in Ibiza. I was in Miami. I was like on yachts. I was doing whatever, and I was not present for my family when they were going through stuff. Um, but what I love about that amends is, although he laughed, two months later he had the courage because of my amends to say, like I was able to, you know, attraction rather rather than promotion. Um, he was like, I want to, I want to try a, I want to try getting sober for real. And now he's got a sponsor and he's doing it for real and he's sober. So like that's the beauty of that amends is it went from like laughter because it was something he didn't want to acknowledge as like he might have an issue to then like he actually accepted it and is doing well, God willing. That's also how I would have dealt with every like serious emotional situation. Like I would always try to like bring awkward humor to it because I just couldn't handle it. Yeah. Yeah. The next one I wanted to ask you was. Like every so often you hear something in a meeting that like really stands out. Mm -hmm. Like I'll give you something that I heard the other day. It was a story of this woman. She was like a former like adult film actress and she had hep 
C and I think she was HIV positive. And so she had, she went going through a lot, Mm -hmm. but she was sober, like very sober. Maybe she had like five years and um, she was talking about her prayer in the morning. And I don't know about you, but like sometimes my prayer game gets a little stale Mm. and sometimes like, I don't know what to say. Like, Mm -hmm. I I don't feel like reading the ones from the book and I just, I feel like I'm out. Mm -hmm. And so she said, every morning when I get on my knees and I pray, I just say the word, please, that's it. Because I know that the God of my understanding can fill in that blank. Mm. Nice. Nice. I'm a third step prayer kind of girl. That's my, that is my jam. I love that one. I say it multiple times a day. Um, but I also just ask for God's will for me and then those that I love and hate in my life. <laughs> what about something that you heard in a meeting late, recently oh. or in the beginning or at any time that like was a game changer for you? You know, oh, I know exactly the story. So um, someone someone at a meeting um, somewhat recently gave this analogy of kind of the giving it up. Because giving it up, when I first came into the rooms, they're like, give it up to your higher power. I was mm-hmm. like, what the hell does that mean? What is the action there? What right. am I supposed to do? And this woman gave the analogy of like, I wake up in the morning and I have all my things on my to-do list and all my stuff. And... I get out of bed and I put everything in my backpack and my backpack's 800 pounds. Mm -hmm. And I go out of my door with my backpack and I'm like hitting people with it. They're getting mad and my shoulder hurts because my stupid backpack's so heavy and I can't even work on all of it today because there's so much stuff. I can't do it all today, but I schlep it around with me all day, every day. She's like, and then one day I'm about to leave my house and I realize there's a cupboard right there. And I'm like, oh, you know what? Why don't I put everything I can't do today in the cupboard and leave it there and only take the things with me that I can work on today. And she's like, I left the house. My backpack's really light. My shoulders feel great. I'm not bumping into people. I'm making them angry and getting into fights. And I just live a happier life. And I was like, aha, because there are so many things that my mind wants to obsess about that I can literally do nothing about today. And I don't, why am I worrying about them? Why am I filling up an 800 pound backpack of things I Mm. can't do today? Let me just leave it at home. And when I can work on it, I'll work on it. And a lot of that is like just having faith in my higher power in the universe that that the things that, that I need to work on will get done as long as I'm showing up and doing the best that I can. Because as a human being, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect and I'm always going to make mistakes. And, I, and all I can do is try my best to correct myself as quickly as possible and live in my higher power's will for me. Like, what do you want me to do today? Just yeah. let me know. Just let me know and give me the strength to carry that out. That's all that I need. I'm going to ask you two more. You don't care, right? Okay. Okay. The first one I wanted to ask you was right now, I feel like this is obviously like a super weird time. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how you feel about Zoom meetings. Like I find them to Mm -hmm. be a bridge or like a Band-Aid, but I don't Mm -hmm. love them. Mm -mm. And so my enthusiasm has waned for AA as Mm -hmm. a whole. I don't really feel like I'm an AA, but I know I'm sober and I'm not drinking, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. This has happened a few different times in sobriety where like my enthusiasm wanes. Mm -hmm. So when that happens to you, what do you do? So something that I have done um, throughout this quarantine is because meetings are no longer physical is focusing on all the other things. So I'm I'm hitting my knees every morning. I'm meditating every day. I'm hitting my knees at night. I'm saying prayers throughout the day. I'm calling my sponsor regularly. I'm having my sponsees check in with me. We've got standing meetings every single week so that we can check in and talk. 
Um, I'm open. I I enjoy giving leads because that makes me feel connected during the meeting. Um, giving and talk, leads like you're, giving you a qualification. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if someone asks me to give a lead yeah, on a yeah, virtual yeah. meeting, then I'm I feel very connected and plugged in. Let me tell you, if I'm not participating in the meeting, then I'm not there. Like I'm like washing dishes and it's like on on the side, but like it, it, it I'm multitasking, but like it doesn't count. You can find solace in that most people, there's no one who I've really heard that genuine, genuinely says, I love these Zoom meetings. But that being said, because I have fellowship in Miami, LA, New York, San Francisco, and Chicago, I can go to all my meetings across the United States. And so the exciting thing for you is, and I can send you a list, like go to a meeting in Paris. <laughs> uh, and then the last one is seriously the last one this time is if there was a newcomer because I think there's a lot of there's going to be a flood of newcomers when this is done. They said alcohol consumption up forty. It's going to be probably crazy. Yeah. So if there was a newcomer listening, mm -hmm. and you, you were going to give a piece of advice, mm -hmm. like what would it be? Like one or two good pieces of advice for a newcomer who was thinking about getting sober. Get a sponsor as soon as possible. And I know it feels like dating, but just ask whatever that man and woman or woman is, just ask them, will you be my sponsor or even temporary sponsor if you're not 100% convinced? Because the sooner that you start having, you have a spiritual advisor locked in, the sooner that you actually do the program for real and you get those benefits. And that irked me with my father because he didn't get a sponsor for like two months. And I was like, he's not really in the program. He's not going to get that spiritual experience. And um, thankfully, he did get a sponsor and the guy is lovely so that's my suggestion for sure all right good suggestion mm -hmm. thanks for coming today so my thanks again to lira n for coming on the podcast today it feels really good to be back and recording again i've already got a few more episodes lined up for uh, the coming weeks which is exciting and i hope it could keep going um, again, if you want to write me at KCB podcast on Instagram, keep coming back podcast at gmail.com is the email address. If you could please write a review on, uh, and the podcast app on Apple, it does make the podcast more discoverable for people that search words like sobriety. Uh, and that's it for me. So again, my name is Mike S. This has been another episode of keep coming back real stories of sobriety and recovery, and I will see you next week.